The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, church. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the amazing love of God the Father and the intimate fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you this day. What a Sunday. And what a Sunday to come back to. I have been in Southern Africa for the past few weeks teaching a course, and I've missed you guys. Well, that's good to hear. At least one person did. Rod just missed miss heckling me. That's what he missed. He didn't feel confident. It's really good to be back. Uh, a few things, a few announcements. Um, Paul and Carol Brazel are here. Our, some of our missionaries, they're missionaries to Belgium. They always, there we go. They always made me stand as a missionary, so you got to stand up. All right, and, and join the World Cup, the success of the World Cup, Belgium fans, and Belgium's doing really well, so we've been following that. We're really glad you guys are here, and we're blessed that you're here. Uh, also, uh, a few announcements. Emily Sisk and Olivia Roberts were baptized the week before last. Is that right? At camp. So we praise God. Yeah, you got to stand up. You, you can't go off to camp and get baptized and then not stand up at church the next Sunday. And then... I really, really need to say, put in my two cents about Northside. Um, I remember the first Sunday that when we joined you guys, we began our service at our old building. And in the middle, we had a police escort that brought us down. And I remember calling Terry that week. And we were going to coordinate some things about what we were going to do. And I remember, I said, so Terry, what are you thinking? And he told me what he was thinking, and it was, it was really, really good. And then, I don't know, I just had the gumption of the gall to say, hey, I, I know I'm, I may be asking a lot, but and I know you guys are really excited to host us. And, and we're really excited as well, but you've got to understand something. Uh, we're kind of in a place of disorientation. I mean, a lot of our members, they grew up in that building. They baptized their kids there. The weddings happened there. You know, it's like leaving that house where you've marked all your kids, right? You could just go back and you're leaving your childhood home and you've got all the stains in the carpet, right? That you know what the, the carpet was there. You have all the marks on the wall. This is your place. And so I said, Terry, if you could, could you just, just be really pastoral? Because while you guys are excited, we're excited too, but we're, we're a little disoriented. And I remember walking into this building, and as we were escorted by the police and then walking into the building, and you guys are lining up down the hall, almost like at a kid's soccer game with the tunnel, right? <laughs> And I remember feeling so at home. 
And then I remember Terry did the communion homily. And I was shocked because he totally changed. I had the goal to ask him to be pastoral, and he decided to change what he was going to do. And I remember he talked about table because we were coming around the table, but he talked about tables at home. And in this beautiful description about what a family looks like when they gather around the table together, what it means to love one another and to share a meal, to share life. And you welcome to sin. Not just Terry and his communion homily, but that's what you did. You made your table our table. You made your home our home. Even when we came in and we made ourselves at home, and we started digging through the fridge, and we took off our shoes and put them up on the couch. Well, maybe not them, but I did that probably. And I know, even though you don't say there had to be times when we spilled something on the carpet, you had to be times when you thought, ugh, what did we do? Who did we let in our house? But I want to say this. You guys, the Springs, have heard me preach on hospitality and radical hospitality. And I'm going to continue to preach till I'm blue in the face about the kind of hospitality that God calls us to because God is a hospitable God. But if I preach until I'm blue in the face, you may not hear a word I have said, but those people sitting right there are your sermon. Do not forget that you too were once without a home. And Northside took you in. And so one day, people are going to come knocking on our door. Lest we forget Northside. Thank you. Thank you for being God's word to us, made flesh, and welcoming us in. We're in the Psalms, the series called The Seasons of Life. And so our psalm today is from Psalm 86. The word of the Lord. Hear me, Lord, and answer, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord. For I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord. For I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there's no one like you. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring you glory to your name. For you're great and you do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. And I will praise you, Lord my God. With all my heart, I will give glory to your name forever. For great is your love towards me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you, but you, 
but you, Lord, are compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger, bounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in my behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and have comforted me. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, for your word this day, we give you thanks. We ask for ears to hear. We ask for hearts to follow. And God, I ask for the gift of preaching that your word may be proclaimed. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Hear me. Answer me. Guard my life. Save me. Have mercy on me, Lord. Bring joy to me. Hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. Turn to me. Have mercy on me. Show your strength. Save me. Just give me a sign of your goodness. Has any of your prayers ever begin with those words? Has any of your prayers ever been a petition to God? God, just hear me. Save me. Maybe they sound like this. God, hear me. Answer when I pray to you. Guard my life from the calamity of death. Save me from heartache and pain. Have mercy on me, O Lord, when the guilt is overbearing. Bring joy when I'm depressed. Hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy when I've sinned. Turn to me when relationships are falling apart. Have mercy on me just when I can't get past myself. Show your strength on my behalf when my body's failing. Save me. Give me a sign of your goodness when my life doesn't seem to have any goodness in it. Have you ever had a prayer that began like that? 40% of the Psalms are laments. 40% of the Psalms begin with these petitions to God. Hear me, save me, have mercy on me. God, turn to me. And so it's appropriate that God's people petition God, both in song and in prayer. But in Psalm 86 is particular, because in Psalm 86, there's not just this petition to God, there's almost this persuasion that's happening. For the writer of the psalm, the problem is not that he doesn't think God is powerful enough. He clearly thinks God can deliver. He clearly thinks God can save. He clearly trusts God, for he says, I'm poor and needy and I trust you. I call on you day and night. You are my God. You alone are God. He clearly trusts in the power of God. The issue is not that God doesn't have power. The issue is, can he make my concern God's concern? 
God turned to me. I know you can do something. Let my problem be your problem. Hear me, save me, have mercy on me. It's almost like a child that knows his parents can do something about it, but has to keep saying, Mom, Mom, and tapping mom on the shoulder or tapping dad on the shoulder, pulling and tugging. Hey, let me get your attention. I need your attention. You can do something. My problem's your problem. And all the parents are like, yes, we know. Go away. I remember my brother, my younger brother. My mom used to say, she used this word that he used to devil me. I don't know if you use that word. He's pick on me. I was the older brother. He'd just, you know, walk up right to you. I was like, don't touch me because I'm not touching you and I'm not touching you and I'm not touching you, right? One of those type of little, you know what I'm saying. You got little brothers? <laughs> All the little brothers are over there going, no, we don't know anything about this. <laughs> All the big brothers are like, mm-hmm. And I remember the only way to stop, I guess I could have hit, hit him, but the only way to really get him to stop is to say, Mom and Dad, Adam is deviling me. Do something about it. Until one time, he was deviling me, and I kind of stood back up against him, and he punched me in the face, and I just looked at him. And then he was running to Mom and Dad, said, Mom and Dad, do something. But the psalmist comes with his petition, God, hear me. I know you can do something. Make my problem your problem. Save me. Turn to me. Help me. And then he goes on to give his complaint. He goes on to say, here's my problem, Lord. Verse 14, arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. And for the psalmist, this is precisely the reason they want to destroy the psalmist. This is precisely the reason they've come to kill. is because they don't know God and they don't know his ways. Because if they knew God, they would heed him. And they would not seek to take your life or my life. Because God is not the one that seeks to take your life. For the psalmist, he's the guarantor of your life. Israel knows their life comes from God. God is the one that guarantees it. And if my enemies only knew the Lord, they would not be after me. Because that is not the way of God. God is for life. And so the psalmist in verse 8 and 10, he says, God, among the gods, there's no one like you. You alone are God. And this is precisely the point. 
God, there's no one like you because there's no one that cares for the poor. There's no one that cares for the needy. There's no other God that does what you do, that people who are in desperate need of help, you are the one that comes and helps. That's what marks God to the psalmist. That's who he is. So then he goes on and prays. He says this in verse 5. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call on you. Verse 10. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. And then verse 15. A phrase that God's people, especially Israel, knows very well. But you, you, Lord, you're compassionate and gracious. You're slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness. This actually, this verse 15, is Israel's main declaration of faith. It comes up over and over again in the Psalms. It actually comes up over Throughout the Old Testament. The Lord, the Lord. The compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. And it comes up over and over as if there is a creedal statement for Israel. I know we talked about being restoration people. There's no creed but the Bible. But if there's any creedal statement for people of, of Israel, this is the statement. Lord, the Lord. Compassion and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is where God's people hang their hat. And it's precisely this phrase comes up when Moses is on the mountain and God passes in front of him and God says this. He reveals himself to Moses, the Lord, the Lord. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And it's interesting that this phrase, this covenant formula, this faith that Israel hangs their head on, it comes up precisely in moments of disorientation. It comes up in the Exodus narrative where Israel has just been slaves to Egypt and God has redeemed them and pulled them out and he says, this is who I am, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, And so it's appropriate that Israel's faith rests in the context of disorientation. Of moments when the world seems to not be right at all, because this is actually when God comes in. The Lord, the Lord. Compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And it's also interesting that the writer of the psalm, he doesn't actually, he doesn't actually try to, to rest on his own feelings about the situation. Because when he calls up in verse 15, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. He's actually drawing on Israel's past. It, it makes me think, and if you're like anything like me, you'll think the same way that when life's not going very well for me, 
a lot of my faith is dependent on how I feel about how, how close God is. Have you ever been there? And some days I feel great. Like things aren't going good, but God is with me. I feel good. And some days I just wonder. You ever had those days? And for the psalmist, he doesn't rest on his own feelings whether God is there or not. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether I feel this way. He actually looks back in history and recounts this story, this phrase that comes up in Israel's history. And he actually recounts and he says, this is what I trust in. When I don't have the feelings or I don't trust my own experience of what's happening right now, this is what I trust in. I have no idea if God's around right now. But I know he was with my people before. So the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. I remember a good friend of mine, when I was in the youth group at Quell Springs, before we changed to the Springs, his name was Todd Barnes. Some of you may know Todd Barnes. I remember sitting with him a year after he had a, his football accident. He was actually playing football for Edmond Memorial High School, and in practice, they were running a drill, and he ran around the end, and he was going to meet this guy head on, and he lowered his head, and the guy lowered his head. And this was before all this stuff about concussions and safety and that are being talked about in the news. But he went in, and they hit heads, and Todd went down. And Todd said, I couldn't feel my legs. Of course, practice stopped. The ambulance came. They put him on a stretcher, and they stabilized him. And he said, Ben, I, I, I didn't know. I was really afraid that that, that was it. I wasn't going to walk again. And at that meeting that I had with him, he was fully healthy. Because when they took him to the hospital, it had shocked some, I don't know how the medicine works and, you know, with the spinal cord, but he didn't feel his legs, but the feeling came back. And the doctors looked at the x-ray. He actually broke his neck. And the doctor says, we don't know how this happened. But basically, when you hit helmet to helmet with that player. A fracture went across your vertebrae and then right before it went into the spinal area, the fracture just took a right turn and went straight up. We don't know how you're walking. And Todd said, thanks be to God. He said, I thought I'd never walk again and God save me. And I remember sitting there in lunch with him, and I was fairly young and hadn't really experienced many hard times in my life. And I remember thinking, I wonder how I'll respond when I get hit in the neck. Not really hit in the neck, but when life hits me in the neck. And it was very important at that moment, I, I said, remember Todd's story. Because one day there may come a time when you don't feel God's presence 
and you don't know if he's going to do anything, and you don't know if he's there, but you need to remember Todd's story. Because we need to continue telling God's story of what he's done in our lives, because one day you might not have a story that you feel you can tell, and you might need other stories. That's what the psalmist does. Lord, Lord, compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. But then it's interesting. Of all that the psalmist says, this is perhaps the most interesting thing. In verse 11, this is what stood out to me most this week. He's given his petition. He's made his complaint. He's trusted in a story that wasn't his own. And then he does this. Teach me your way, Lord. That I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I don't know about you, but in the 40% of the Psalms that are laments, when I'm crying out to God, saying, God, help me, save me, turn to me, have mercy on me, the one thing I'm not saying is, Lord, teach me. Maybe you're a better person than I am, but I'm not saying that. In fact, I'm probably saying, God, this is not a time for a Bible lesson. This is not time for a life lesson. I'm in real pain here. I'm in real hurt here. I'm in real trouble here. Save me. Save your lessons for later. But in this amazing turn, right in the middle of the psalm, he has the goal and the audacity to say, Lord, teach me your ways. So that I may rely on your faithfulness. And this is not a confession that suggests that a faithful life is unmoved by trouble. The Psalms teach us in other places, and we could look at Psalms 88. Psalms 88 ends like this. Darkness is my only companion. The Psalms teach us that to be human is to be moved by trouble. If you face trouble in your life, it is, to be moved is to be human. Don't be ashamed of that. To be disoriented. And to speak about life circumstances with honesty and candor. This is what the psalmist teaches us. God, I am in trouble. Help me. But this is not a confession that suggests that a faithful life is unmoved by trouble. But here's what it is. It is a confession that in the midst of trouble, that we rest in the confidence that God is forgiving and good. It is acknowledgement that in the midst of betrayal, that we cherish his abounding love. 
It is the recognition that in the midst of failure that we can say, but there's no one like him. No one can do what he does. It's a profession that in the midst of great sorrow, that his love is great towards us and he delivers us from the depths. It's a confession that in the midst of pain, that rests in the confidence that God is compassionate and gracious, that he is slow to anger, that he abounds in love and in faithfulness. It's a confession that in our time of greatest need, he helps us and he comforts us. In the midst of life's hardest struggles, God is the psalmist, he wants to know that way of life. He wants to know what it means to be faithful. So in the midst of trouble, danger, failure, sorrow, pain, the psalmist says, teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. So when there's betrayal, teach me. Teach me your forgiveness and your goodness. When trouble and hardship comes, Lord, teach me how to abound in love. When someone fails, teach me to proclaim your mighty deeds that never fail. When trouble and hardship comes, teach me how to love others and work redemptively in their lives. And when there's great pain and grief, Teach me compassion and grace and patience. Teach me abounding love and faithfulness. And when others are in times of need, like the Springs was two, out, two years and how many ever days ago, God, teach us to help and to comfort. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Let's stand and sing.